Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we hear about the situation of mothers and other caregivers speaking out. They hail from Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, also Scotland. And we hear from a male caregiver from Pennsylvania and an indigenous woman from Canada. Our guest is Peggy O'Mara former editor of Mothering Magazine. She joins us to discuss a global survey now underway on what mothers and other caregivers want and how you can participate. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, in collaboration with the utility company PG&E, plan on cutting down a tree where bald eagles have nested for several decades. Redwood Nation Earth First and Potter Valley Eagle Project are leading a protest against killing the tree. Our guest is Pauline Gervin, part of a family of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians. Also, David Trujillo, who helped to establish the Chicano Writers Workshop and the Chicano Theater Group Teatro a la Brava, joins us to discuss his latest work, the play Vincent. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. A helicopter crash near Ukraine's capital has killed at least 16 people, including children and the country's interior minister, who's the most senior official to die since Russia invaded nearly a year ago. There's no immediate word on whether the morning crash was an accident or related to the war. Mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. This uh, young guy, very patriotic guy, do it a lot of things for Ukraine and uh, make a police reform uh, in, uh, in Ukraine and big strategy for Ukraine, for his family, uh, and also children, children. The crash is a second large-scale tragedy to hit the country this week after a Russian missile strike on an apartment building killed dozens of civilians. Ukrainian authorities immediately opened an investigation. No fighting has been reported recently in the Kiev area. Meanwhile, Russia's President Vladimir Putin says Moscow's actions in Ukraine are intended to stop a war that's raged in the eastern part of the country since 2014, and their victory is inevitable. Putin said today Moscow had long sought to negotiate a settlement to the conflict in Ukraine's Donbass region, but was duped and cheated. Russian-backed separatists have battled Ukrainian forces in the region for nearly a decade, almost nine years. Putin today argued their special military operation in Ukraine is, quote, an attempt to stop the war, unquote. He described Ukraine's east as Russia's historic territories and said Moscow had to act to protect its people there. Ukraine and allies have rejected the rationale as 
cover for unprovoked aggression. The head of the United Nations says the world is in a sorry state because of interlinked challenges, including climate change and Russia's war in Ukraine. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke in Davos at the World Economic Forum, where the world's super rich are meeting with heads of state from around the globe. He warns the struggles are piling up like cars in a chain reaction crash. Add to this toxic brew yet another combustible factor, conflict, violence, war, especially the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Not only because of the untold suffering of the Ukrainian people, but because of its profound global implications on global food and energy prices, on trade and supply chains, on questions of nuclear safety. Antonio Guterres. A report says companies from at least 13 countries have helped Myanmar build up its capacity to produce weapons that are currently being used to commit atrocities. The report by the Special Advisory Council for Myanmar details how the country has stepped up arms production since the army seized power in 2021, igniting a mass public opposition movement. It says companies in the U.S., Europe, Asia, and the Middle East are supporting the military supply chain and urges the businesses to ensure they're not facilitating human rights abuses. It cites the U.S.-based Haas Automation Incorporated Company for selling milling machines to the junta. It also names companies in Ukraine, Germany, Italy, Taiwan, Russia, and Singapore. The Assistance Association for Political Prisoners says it's documented more than 2,700 civilian deaths in the violence, including 277 children, while more than 13,000 people have been detained. In the U.S., Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont gave a primetime speech Tuesday night on the state of the working class. Christopher Martinez has more. The economy is doing extraordinarily well. It's doing fantastically for the people on top for the billionaire class. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont gave a speech on the working class in America. Unfortunately, the economy is not doing so well for the working class of our country when we have tens of millions of families falling further and further behind. Sanders is slated to become chair of the Senate's Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, sometimes shortened to HELP Committee. He talked about each of those areas with references to some of his priorities like universal health care, debt-free college, union rights, and protecting Social Security. In larger terms, he put the issue in terms of the long-term decline of the middle class, along with growing wealth inequality and its effects on democracy. What we are witnessing now in this country is the rapid evolution of our society into an oligarchy in which the billionaire class has enormous and growing control over the economic and political life of this country. That is the reality, and that's a reality we must confront. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News, KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. An analysis from a new report shows that police response times are getting longer. The analysis is based on data collected from 15 cities nationwide examining police responses to low-level crime to violent crime. The data show that cities like Seattle, New Orleans, New York City, and Portland are seeing longer average response times. The group Police Executive Research Forum conducted the study. It says staffing levels at police departments are going down as more officers leave the profession or retire, and the flow 
of new officers to replace them hasn't been keeping up. Some cities have been dealing with the shortage by referring some non-emergency and mental health calls to civilian agencies. I'm Christina Onestad reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Today, starting off our show, we visit What Mothers and Caregivers Want, which is an international survey. This survey was put together by a global group in the global south as well as the global north. It was launched on International Women's Day of 2022 as part of marking the 50th anniversary of the Wages for Housework campaign. Now, the survey is in several languages, and we're going to be hearing from our guest, Peggy O'Mara, a bit more about the survey and also the importance of it and how you can participate. The organizers of the survey say, while there is increased recognition that caring work is indispensable, those doing this work, overwhelmingly women, are never asked what we think about how we spend our time, the resources we have or don't have, and our relationship with the people we care for. The survey aims to find out what mothers and other caregivers in different countries and of different genders and backgrounds want. Before we welcome our guests, we are going to listen to some caregivers who are speaking out in very some in very different circumstances. First, we're going to hear from Elizabeth who's from Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. And then that's going to be followed by the voice of Benita Lawrence, who as an indigenous woman based in Canada. Let's go to those clips now. Hello, everyone. My name is Elizabeth and I live in Yango, Myanmar. I am a mother of two daughters and I work full time supporting the rights of migrant workers and their families. Currently, everyone in Myanmar is struggling to survive under the COVID pandemic and the military coup. The military coup has increased the stress and workload of women. We have to queue for hours just to get money from the ATM. We have to leave our homes at home or delete everything before we go out to the market. At night, we prepare emergency bags ready to run if needed. We must be alert all the time because the security forces can come to our homes and arrest us. Unexpected bone explosions and shooting are happening very often in the city. Therefore, no matter if we stay at home or go out, it is not safe. We also have to be strong and not show our fear to protect our children from nightmares and feeling of insecurity. Working from home, we no longer have our community of women friends with whom we could share our fears and relax and have fun together. For women in ethnic areas, the situation is even worse with airstrike, facing them to take their children and run for safety and hide in the jungle. Some of these challenges have been newly created by the situation of COVID and the coup, and others are very old, based in so-called Burmese traditions regarding the role of women. We do have hope, though. Our spring revolution to defeat the military is also challenging these old ways of thinking. Last year on International Women's Day, to protect their communities, women hang they are surrounded at the entrance to their streets. 
Burmese men consider women clothing dirty and will not walk under this around for fears of losing their virility. Therefore, the soldiers dared not enter those communities. Women have also joined the armed resistance forces fighting alongside their brothers. They have led and joined the street protests and our pot and pans for cooking have been banged fiercely at night to express our outrage at the military takeover. At this time, we cannot depend on Airbnb to change things for us. We can only depend on ourselves. As women, we have to stay united and connected and to resist the oppression in all its forms. Today, the struggle for democracy is hand in hand with the struggle for equality and equity. We now need to make sure it also includes respect for the work we do in the home, in the workplace, and for the future of the country. Being part of the global women's strike is really important for us, as we know that we can only whisper. You will be there to amplify our voices. Thank you so much, Bonita Lawrence from Canada. Bonita is Macmillan and teaches in the Indigenous Studies program at York University in Toronto, Canada. Bonita, I'm not a mother, although I've helped to raise my nieces and nephews. But when I was a child, we always worried about being taken away. My mother was a single mother who was native with five children. The only reason we weren't taken by Children's Aid was because we grew up in a white community, being non-status. Because the taking away of children of native mothers is something that's huge in Canada. It's really it can be considered genocide. It started with residential schooling that went on for over a century in Canada. The last residential school closed in 1994, but they began to be, take away the children from Native communities. That became possible in 1951, and from that point onwards, social workers drove school buses onto reserves to take children. Some communities lost all of their children. For these children, of course, when you grow up in care, you age out at 18 if you're lucky. If not, The adoptions or the foster system breaks down, and you end up on the street. So it's a terrible thing. Within a couple of years of this change in, in legislation in 1951, the number of children in care, native children in care, jumped to 95 percent in many of the northern agencies. Now there was some intergenerational trauma going on, so children were taken away because of neglect. But Canada would only pay for in-care costs. So rather than supporting families in crisis the way they were doing in white communities, they just took the children in native communities. Most of it was poverty. They thought that poverty, no matter how well the children were being cared for, was enough to take them away. And they thought that native mothers are not proper mothers. And it's continued for the past 70 years: the taking of children. Now there's more native children in care than there were at the height of residential schools. Native children are 120 times likely to be apprehended by Children's Aid than white children. 120 times as likely. So it's something that's genocidal. There's no other way. It's clearly a way of destroying native families, which is what Canada has been trying to do for many, many years. We're six percent of the population, I should say. Six percent of the population, 120 times, is likely to lose our children. This is starting to happen with Black communities as well, and in Canada, are primarily, except for the East Coast, where people were brought in as slaves early, 
or came in after the American Revolution. Other than that, most Black people in Canada are immigrants from the Caribbean, uh, which was has been going, you know, for the past 50 years, uh, and more recently from Africa. And they they started criminalizing. The media was filled with ideas that uh, young Black youths were criminals. And this was, I think, the pretext. So they've begun to take the children of Black mothers now. Black mothers are now 40 times as likely to be apprehended as white children. And many of them, of course, are immigrant families. All righty. You are hearing the voices of uh, mothers and other caregivers uh, speaking out. This, uh, These clips are from an event at the launching of the Mothers Survey, a global what do mothers and other caregivers want. We'll be discussing with our guest, Peggy O'Mara, shortly. But first, let's hear two more voices. One, Michelle Kane, who is based in Scotland with Scotland Kinship Care, and also Eric Gerd a man who is a caregiver based in Pennsylvania. Let's go to those voices now. Hi, I'm Micheline Kane, a grandmother, and I look after my two grandchildren as my daughter is not well enough to look after them. I live in Glasgow in Scotland. I'm also the head of Scottish Kinship Care Alliance, a grassroots campaigning group which fights for justice for vulnerable children being looked after by kinship carers, mostly grandmothers. We campaign to get the same money, resources and services for our children that foster parents get. We support over 1,000 carers all over Scotland. We fight to keep our grandchildren together in the home with their families and their siblings and prevent them from being fostered out or taken away into adoption. It is tough and it is a heartbreaking job, but it's also our labour of love but we are impoverished and often penalised for doing which is outrageous. How does it help any of our children or any of our carers? We also fight for money and resources for the young mothers so that their children are not taken away because of poverty, ill health or sadly addictions in the first place. We are glad to be part of this international survey asking mothers and other carers what they want so that mums, grands can put our view across of what we want and we need. We wish every woman worldwide today love and peace. My partner, Tanya, and I took care of her mother, who was in her 80s in her own home, until she passed away in 2017. She had been seriously injured in a car accident in 2010 and had lasting physical and cognitive trauma it meant she needed 24-hour support for daily activities, such as personal care, keeping a calendar, cooking, cleaning, doing finances, transportation, and much more. And despite uh, us having the crucial supports of home health workers uh, a few hours a week, and also uh, she was able to attend an adult day program, we were often overwhelmed with the stresses of being ultimately responsible for another human being 24 seven, um, particularly for my partner who was her primary caregiver. Like many women facing the double day, I often felt that my wage work was the easier and less stressful of my jobs. Um, we did not receive any money for this work. Uh, there is a little money available for family caregivers now from the state 
but it's paid much less than even home healthcare workers um, who receive horrible wages and few benefits. If we want to make it possible for more people to choose to do this work, uh, particularly men uh, who have relied on women to do, uh, to do the work, um, we have to confront the fact that when we set out to truly care for a loved one, particularly someone vulnerable to abuse, uh, like an older person with disabilities, you soon find yourself in a struggle against an industry that prioritizes making money off the people they are supposed to care for and off of us, the caregivers. Um, and this more than anything else was what I remember uh, as the source of the stress in our lives. The industry really has an army of, of different agents, including many doctors and lawyers, uh, social workers, and even our own family members uh, who thought that you know, they knew better than us non-professionals. Um, we had to constantly negotiate to protect our mother's ability to make her own fundamental decisions. Uh, and luckily, there were some advocates we found. Um, uh, my partner had to search high and low to find them uh, who actually supported caregivers and the rights of those with dementia. Um, caring really changes you. And men who do this caregiving work can learn what mothers know, how to put the needs of others before our own. It's hard work, but it's also rewarding and liberating. Uh, in Payday Men's Network that I work with, we focus on opposing the death and destruction caused by war and militarism, with the opposite of caring for life. This survey could give us crucial leverage in the struggle to, by exposing the work, uh, what we want for it and helping us get it. Many more of us would be able to choose to do this life-giving work, providing a better alternative to the nursing home industry and adding years of life to caregivers and their loved ones alike. Thank you very much. Wow, hearing from different sectors of uh, caregivers, you just heard Eric Gerdson say, caring changes you. And he describes how that happens. You put the needs of others before your own. I'd now like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Peggy Omara, independent journalist who edits and publishes PeggyOmara.com. She was editor and publisher of Mothering Magazine for over 30 years. Her books include Having a Baby Naturally, Natural Family Living, The Way Back Home, and A Quiet Place. She's conducted workshops at Omega Institute, Esalon, Hollyhock, La Leche League, and Bioneers. She is the recipient of the La Leche League International 2001 Alumni Association Award. She is the mother of four and grandmother of three, and Peggy was part of the team that developed uh, the survey, What Do Mothers and Other Caregivers Want?, and also monitoring the progress of the survey. Peggy, welcome back. Thank you so much, Margaret. Great to be here. Okay, so Peggy, we heard voices um, uh, ranging from Myanmar, where there's a military dictatorship, uh, to Scotland, uh, to indigenous uh, woman base in Canada, to a male uh, caregiver. In the process of the survey, and you've been monitoring the surveys coming in, tell us a bit about the sectors of people that you're hearing from, because they're not just from one particular uh, grouping or economic background, or even country. Peggy O'Mara. 
Yes, it's been an amazing uh, response, really. Um, we have answers. Well, let me first say, Margaret, that the survey is in four languages. So it does reach an international audience in English, Spanish, Thai, and Italian, and it's soon to be in Hindi. And we have responses now from 49 countries and from six continents. And while most are from the UK, the USA, and Thailand, we have responses from Germany, Italy, Brazil, Fiji, Myanmar, Burma, Nepal, India, Syria, Uganda, Russia, and the Ukraine. In terms of sectors, most of the responses are from those who identify as women, but 4% of the responses are from trans women, 3% from those who identify as men, and 2% from those who identify as non-binary. We have a broad distribution of ages from 19 years old to over 60. Most are in opposite sex marriage or partnerships, but 43% are single, 5% are in same sex marriage or partnerships, 41% are white, 24% are Asian, 13% are black or of African descent, 8% Hispanic or Latinx, 7% of mixed race, 4% of are um, indigenous, and nearly 50% have no or low income because as we know, and as was mentioned before, many caregivers... Um, are most, are, you know, vast majority of caregivers are unpaid and most of them live in poverty. Um, 77% of the respondents are mothers, 45% are unpaid caregivers, and 11% are paid caregivers. Wow, just incredible information being gathered there, Peggy. And with the situation, I mean, we, with COVID coming on the scene, I think the whole world saw the centrality yes. of the work of caregiving. Well, caregiving is the underbelly of the economy. I mean, without the caregiving, nothing would happen. Without feeding, taking care of homes, uh, cleaning things, maintaining things is the underbelly of the production of our economy. And we just tend to dismiss it and let it go by without hardly any support. And as you said, that's why we did the survey, because nobody ever asks mothers and caregivers what they want. We have very few policies in the United States that help caregivers and even when those policies are in um, discussion, you know, they're usually follow the interests of business, not the interests of what the people and the caregivers really need. Right. The work is being seen as a, somehow a charity. But we know that caregivers, unpaid caregiving, creates uh, trillions of dollars for the economy worldwide and in the United States millions of dollars worldwide. And this uh, information you're gathering is really critical right now because we saw that the child tax credit um, was, you know, stopped basically, the expanded child tax credit. There's now a growing movement that is calling for a permanent uh, child allowance for children in the United States, as happened in most Western countries. And of course, you and I, Peggy, are both part of the movement calling for a care income. So tell us now where things are, the stage you are with the survey, because it's critical. And I'm actually hoping that our Sojourner Truth listeners, not only in Southern California, but in all of the cities and rural areas that hear our show, will be able to participate. So also let our listeners know how they can participate. Peggy Omada. Yeah, the survey was launched in March of 2022, and we want to keep it open until for a couple more months or another month or so, we have nearly a thousand responses and we want to get over a thousand responses in order to have a really good pool of answers that we can um, speak about in terms of the results. 
Uh, I, I'm hoping that you can put the links to the surveys, the survey on your website. Um, I don't think giving the link over the air would be helpful. Um, will you be able to do that, Margaret? Put the links to the four. We will get it. We'll get it out to our social okay. media. And also we know that people can find information on the survey and how to participate in, in different languages if they go to globalwomenstrike.net globalwomenstrike.net they'll get that information as well uh, but Peggy to, to, to meet even a thousand um, which I know was the initial goal how many more do we need how many more of our listeners do we need participating we are we are you know we just are getting a, just a lot even the last few days um, we need about another 80 surveys let's say a hundred surveys we would need to really complete it um, but we're very very close we have over 900 at this point, 920, I think. So we really want, you know, and I think the thing to mention that I'd like to mention is the survey is, has 45 questions. It takes about 11 minutes. So it takes a bit of time, but it's very thought provoking because it really asks a lot of questions um, that are important to caregivers. It asks people how, if they get the support they need, if they have a disability, um, if they themselves want to be cared for in their home or by professionals, how they have cared for their own children, if they were ever separated from their children, as, as Bonita has mentioned, how many hours they spend caring for others, if they think the government supports mothers, children, older people, and people with disabilities. It's really an opportunity for people to speak out about the unspoken, about the things that we know. So many people are taking care of their neighbors. They're taking care of people with mental um, illness, with chronic illness. They're caring for elderly relatives and friends, um, they're, you know, as Eric mentioned previously, they're doing a double day. Uh, so it would really be helpful to get a wide variety of voices um, for the survey. We feel good about what we've got, but we need more surveys and we'd love to have um, your audience uh, fill out the survey and let us know what their experiences have been, because we want to tell others, we want to make a case for caregivers, mothers and other caregivers about what they need and, as you said, advocate for a caregiving income to help those caregivers. The, what happened with the child tax credit was disgraceful. There was wide popular support for that across party lines, across racial lines, um, and, you know, the Republicans just shut it down. Right. And and Peggy, uh, we are going to have to end it there. But um, okay. just to remind our audience that the United States is actually third in responses. Thailand is ahead of, of the U.S. So, oh, folks, just we catching, listen we up. <laughs> we're catching up. Well, we're I catching up. We're almost so. there, Margaret. OK. And oh, again, yeah, we need more. I mean, for such a big country, we have a yeah, we, we definitely need more, more, more responses from the U.S. Right. And again, go to globalwomenstrike.net and you will be able to access the survey and uh, fill it out. Peggy O'Mara, thank you so very much for joining us and for your work. Thank you, Margaret. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to take a short station break. And uh, coming up, what's going on with um, the attack by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, of all people, and PG&E against bald eagles, a place where bald eagles have nested for several decades. Uh, Pauline Gervin will join us and also coming up, David Trujillo, about his latest work at the play Vincent. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Oh, little respect when 
Okay, and our respect by Aretha Franklin. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at So True Radio. And uh, we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Today, I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the unincorporated area of San Bernardino, Wonder Valley, California, and internationally. I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Scotland. Now, for Indigenous people, the bald eagle represents the strongest and bravest of all birds. For this reason, Native Americans chose the eagle and its feathers as a symbol of what is highest, bravest, strongest, and holiest. It is sacred. The bald eagle uh, is indigenous to um, North America. Its range includes most of Canada and Alaska and all of the contiguous United States and northern Mexico. It is found near large bodies of open water with an abundant food supply and old growth trees for nesting. Now, in indigenous culture, eagle feathers are given um, to uh, honor. It is sacred and they are worn with dignity and pride. And only uh, indigenous people, only Native Americans, by the way, are legally allowed to collect eagle feathers. Um, They are treated with great respect. An eagle feather is also used to adorn the sacred pipe because it is a symbol of the great spirit who is above all and from whom all strength and power flows. Now, the founding fathers of the United States usurped indigenous beliefs, and they chose the bald eagle to be the national bird of the United States, and it appears on the seal of the U.S. Now, Uh, In 1995, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service reclassified the bald eagle from endangered to threatened in the lower 48 uh, states. And now a threat to a nesting area of the um, bald eagle. I would like to welcome our guest to discuss with us what's going on and why people are out there protesting. I'd like to welcome Pauline Gervin, who is an elder. She's married into the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians, in whose ancestral territory the eagle tree in question stands. She is an Indian law attorney, a veteran of the 1990s Northern California Timber Wars, a youth mentor, and nonviolent warrior for Mother Earth and her people. Pauline Gervin, welcome. Thank you. What an honor to be on this panel with these brave and valiant and good-hearted caretakers. Thank you for your service. I'm speaking to you from the unceded territory of the northern Pomo tribes, located in what is now called Mendocino County, California. We live in the Redwood Forest Riverine area of Northern California. I, as an Indian law attorney, have done a fair bit of work under the Indian Religious Freedom Act, and certainly a lot under the Indian Child Welfare Act. So I am here for our great-grandchildren, and the future generations. Let me give you just a thumbnail sketch of what we've been up to up here. We had to confront, local environmentalists had to confront the zeal of PG&E to cut down a nest of eagles that had returned to their nest over the past 15 years, the same nest, 
to lay their babies. We got a call in the middle of the river of this, what they call an atmospheric river up here in Northern California. I responded for Coyote Valley as a delegate of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians. I'm 72 and everyone else on the front line was under 25. We had the obligation to protect our eagle relatives in our religious views, in Pomo cultural heritage views. These are relatives in a circle of life. So went to the front lines and six people through incredibly stormy weather held the gate in front of this nest. PG&E did come try to cut it down, even when they knew that the eagles had returned. We held the line. We were holding the line till the beginning of the nesting season, which under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife regulations, when that starts, they could no longer cut the tree down. We reached that goal. And I just want to say that up in our region, the combination of direct action, frontline, nonviolent activists, environmentalists, and tribal nations combining together has really proven to be a formidable coalition. So we were out there. They did come in. They're pushing around. Of course, they pushed the young ladies first, shoving around, saying they were going in to cut the tree. We already knew and had proven documentary evidence that the eagles were nesting there. So knowing that, PG&E still wanted to go down there and extract the nest. Well, they didn't get to because frontline direct action, bodies on the line, turned them away. And then at the same time, we had the tribe, the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians, under federal executive orders, compelling government-to-government consultation. We had the tribe come to the table and say, fish and wildlife, you got to hold off here. We got to try to see if we can come up with more reasonable alternatives. And at the same time, we had a lot of concerned community members, high-placed political members intervening on our behalf. Congressman Huffman spoke with the CEO of PG&E and demanded that the property owners be made whole, the nest stay up, and other alternatives to protecting, addressing the concerns, safety concerns, wire concerns of PG&E be addressed, such as putting the lines underground rather than worrying that this tree is going to fall on it. And as you may have seen in the state, in the statewide primetime campaign of PG&E, their new director gets on and goes, we're here to deal with a new future. We're going to be putting the lines underground throughout the state. Well, to prevent fire hazard. Well, in our area, they were bullying the local property owners saying they had to pay 200,000 to put a line underground. So we have had a, we have had a slaughter of trees up here also by PG&E, excessive cutting of old growth redwood, of old growth oaks in, in areas that aren't even close enough to the wires to hit them. So there's been a ravaging of our old growth oak and redwoods by PG&E under the auspices of fire safety. But so there we are. And now we know for sure yesterday that we have won. So the tribe intervened for government to government consultation. They are being represented by the Center for Biological Diversity. And yesterday was the first session the tribe had with Fish and Wildlife, in which we ascertained that, yes, indeed, when there is an active nest, 
that PG can't go in and cut. Yeah, so I mean, Jocelyn, I mean, you're still on, on the fight, but you have won this round. That's terrific news. And and really, for our listeners across the country, I mean, this is this is California, but we know communities are facing all kinds of, of threats uh, to our relatives. Uh, you refer to the eagle as our relatives. I definitely believe that also uh, the trees, uh, in contrast, in the uh, California desert, you have a threat to the Joshua tree. People are fighting to protect the Joshua tree. The California desert tortoise is now uh, being said to be going extinct. And you have people in the high desert community that are fighting right now a development that would uh, be a threat uh, to the tortoise, to the dark sky, and to the critters in the desert. So your example of community coming together with indigenous people, with the Center for biodiversity is certainly a formula that could be useful for others around the around the world. Paulie, we are going to have to end it there, but will you please keep us informed in terms of what else is, is going on about the work that you all are doing up there to protect the natural world, really? And congratulations on, on your efforts. For people who want to support your efforts, is there anything that they can do, Pauline? Yes, because a large part of our effort is also protecting old growth in Jackson State Forest, a 50,000 acre state park. Well, we would like you to look on the website to savejackson.org. Savejackson.org. Well, we are, yeah, we are going to have to leave it there, but we'll have you back and stay tuned and and all of the the work and struggles that you are involved in. Thank you so very much and congratulations (laughs) to all involved. Yeah. And Pomo Land Back, that's a .org, or Pomo Land Back is also another one to hook up with. My co-elder is saying behind my back. Okay, thank you. Right. Okay, thank you so very much, our Pomo.org. We are now going to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, David Sorheo. He hasn't been with us for a while, but he has yet another success. He was a Cal State University LA student doing some activist work there. He helped to establish the Chicano Writers Workshop and the Chicano Theater Group Teatro Alabrafa. He is a longtime activist whose previous work has centered on anti-Vietnam War movement going back to the 1970 National Chicago Mar- uh, Chicano Moratorium Against the War in Vietnam and its impact. David, welcome back. Hello, Margaret. Thank you. And let me wish your audience a wonderful Martin Luther King year. We should be celebrating his principles all year long. Absolutely. And and right out of the gate, I want to thank East L.A. poet out of El Sereno, Ron Baca, who helped with uh, today's uh, segment. Now, uh, David, you have had... um, success now with your latest work, uh, Vincent. Um, Tell us... um, what the play is is based on, of course, Vincent uh, Van Gogh. Many of our audience likely familiar, um, at least have seen his work. Nobody can afford his work these days. But uh, tell us about the play. It's been extended, and um, and also why this particular topic, David. All right, good. Uh, I'm uh, fortunate to have the the main actor here, David. Edward Reyes, and he's the solo actor in this play, Vincent. 
and I'm going to have him sort of tell you about the place as he's done it the last past two weeks. We sold out, and now we're going to extend it for this weekend. But David Everett Reyes. Hi, Margaret. My name is David. I'm David's son, so David and David. Yeah. <laughs> okay. To talk a little bit about the play itself. And yeah, Vincent Van Gogh. I'm obviously, we all are very aware. And really, the play is just about humanizing him. And it kind of comes back to uh, what Peggy was saying. It's actually about Theo and how he's not as I wouldn't say primary caregiver, but he's supporting Vincent Mango throughout his entire time with his mental health, with finances. And so really the play to me is about family and love and just how we support each other and mental illness. And it really serves to humanize a figure that kind of has become so, I don't want to say demonized, but it's become this other icon within the pop culture world about his ear and his paintings. And yeah, we can't afford them. And that's even addressed in this play. But it all kind of comes down also to the type of work that he did and how it was about working class people and, you know, the the common everyday folk, which is something I think that's so important that's missed a lot, even in the art world and how we're finding artists who have similar themes and interests and how it connects to modern day artists, which is what we're doing and bringing in Chicana artists to kind of compare themes and to show how relevant it was and how relevant it still is and why it resonates with so many of us because it's about the average person. It's about us. It's not about the high class society. Now it's been kind of stolen because, yeah, we can't afford a $10 million piece by Vincent Van Gogh, but it's about being human. Absolutely. And, you know, there were about 500 letters were there that were exchanged between Van Gogh and his brother. And you're quite right to refer to his brother Theo as a caregiver uh, for him. Van Gogh, clearly a genius, clearly very troubled in some ways, the famous story of him cutting off his ear. And, you know, people have to understand what was really behind that, all of, of what he was dealing with. So it's it's interesting that you have a Chicano artist, you have David Trujillo, your dad, and you involved in this. And I imagine some eyebrows were raised. Well, what does this have to do with your specific community, right? But as you say, it's a, a, it's a human story. It is a global uh, story. And so tell us, it's, it's also met with great success because you've been sold out and now you uh, are extending the play. How long are you extending it for? Where will the play be? And how can people get tickets? Yeah, all, all he wrote uh, tons of letters. Uh, his brother, Theo, kept all of the letters that Vincent Van Gogh wrote. Uh, Vincent kept, I think, none of the letters that Theo wrote him back. But yeah, so we extend the play uh, a third weekend. It'll be Saturday at 7 p.m. and Sunday at 2 p.m., kind of a night and a matinee crowd. It's going to be at the uh, Margaret Garcia Art Studio, and uh, that's in uh, Highland Park, uh, Cypress Park kind of border, or Glassell Park. And you can find tickets on Eventbrite under Vincent, and it'll be the only L.A. location in there. So yeah, we're pretty pretty lucky to put this up, and people have been really responsive to it. And when will it end again? Tell us that again. So we were only extending just... Just for one more weekend, which is this weekend. So Saturday the 21st at 7 p.m. and Sunday the 22nd at 2 p.m. Right. So this is this is the last chance. Why do you think, in your view, I mean, I know clearly having to do the fact that you had to extend it, testament to your talent, uh, David Edward Reyes doing a one-man performance, always difficult to do. Why do you think it has been met so successfully with the audience. 
David. Thank you for the kind words. I think a, a large portion is just the content. Um, and again, it's, it's at Margaret Garcia's art studio. So we're trying to kind of butt traditional trends of theater. First of all, that's kind of our whole point of doing our theater is to kind of challenge what is uh, considered usually kind of an elitism kind of art form and bring it back down, which is kind of where we're um, going with Vincent, uh, but it's also just the fact that not a lot is known about him uh, through the general masses. Uh, so we're just people end up learning and it ends up humanizing him so much. It kind of brings the lens back on the audience itself that kind of taking advantage of this person, realizing just how much he struggled and how much he hurt in order to produce his art that we get to enjoy for the past hundred years. Right. And, and, and David, well, actually for, for both of you, I mean, we have a national audience here on Sojourner Truth and what you say about having it in an art studio, I'm sure that artists and other people in other parts of the country, Country, ears might have perked up because that's uh, you could be starting or continuing a trend of using art studios in quite a, a different way. We just have like about a, a minute or so left, and I'm wondering if David Trujillo, if you thank you, David Edward Reyes, for, for your work and uh, your continued success, but. I'm sure our audience are also wondering what's next on the plate for David Trujillo. I do have a new original play that's going to be coming out called The Burning Cross. I think your audience would be excited about this. It's about three women who work in a large industrial facility and they have to deal with this boss who's a sexist and racist. We hope to have that out maybe by the early summer. That's an original play. We're just staging Vincent. That'll be coming out soon. Right. Well, that's we, we very much look forward to that. And please let us know when Burning Cross comes out and uh, we would share the information with our audience. So to both Davids, David Tohio and his son, David Edward Reyes, congratulations on the play, uh, Vincent. And just tell us one more time how uh, people in Southern California um, can get a copy, can get tickets. Uh, so the tickets will be available on eventbrite.com uh, under the play Vincent. And again, we're going Saturday the 21st at 7 p.m. and Sunday the 22nd at 2 p.m. And afterwards, stay, enjoy the art, come early, enjoy the art, talk with me afterwards. We can discuss Vincent and all things art. Right. Well, thank both of you so very much for joining us. We are going to have to leave it there. Thank, thank you and all the best. Good luck this weekend. And um, Peggy Omara has asked that I let people know about the Mothers and Other Caregivers survey, that if they go to globalwomenstrike.net, if they go under the section that says campaigns, you'll be able to find the survey information there. But we are out of time. I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. I'd like to thank all of today's guests. Uh, today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, our engineer for today, uh, Gary Baca. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Remember, you can become a member or a sustainer of this local station of KPFK uh, by going to kpfk.org. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for more programming on your local Pacifica station. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening, and y'all please remember to stay safe.